I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5. And we're going to be reading the last paragraph of John chapter 5 and finishing out that chapter and leaving chapter 6 for another time. But let me begin reading when we're all there together in verse number 30. That is John chapter 5 verse 30 through 47. I can do nothing of my own. This is Jesus speaking. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Verse 37 And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, for his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you would receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. On whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is God's word. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your help again. To understand your word and then to obey it. We thank you for this time together under the sound of your word. Be our teacher. May we be your student. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Now this message this morning comes on the heels of the passage we studied last week. And in successive weeks all the way back to uh, months and months and months ago. And when we teach our way through a book study, each taking a chunk at a time, sometimes we're intrigued, maybe amazed, perhaps at times even shocked as to what might line up on a specific day and we have what we need for that specific occasion. Uh, This Sunday is different among others because we're recognizing our graduates. And uh, for the most part, this message will be geared toward this front row right over here. Now that doesn't mean for a minute that the rest of you are off the hook. 
uh, as we tried to demonstrate this past Wednesday in Bible study, even when we were looking at a passage describing a group of people that we likely couldn't be any more different from, uh, who were persecuting the church uh, that James was writing to, we made sure to say that we at least need to try the shoe on. Because even in those passages, you might find that some things fit. And if they fit, we better, we better use them and wear them. This is God's Word. So we take these things seriously. And uh, if today we are emphasizing uh, our graduates and uh, we're studying a piece of Scripture in order to find out what it is the Lord has in store for us, I think it's probably best we just try to look at this as if we were going to write a report on it. Okay? Now, there's no report on this. There's no test. You've had enough of those. And uh, you've got many more coming. Uh, but we want to make sure we get all our, our, our facts together as if we were going to try to write and prove that we have mastered at least this material. That's what testing and papers are all about. So we'll need to ask lots of questions as to what we're looking at. And then we'll need to organize the answers to those questions in some form of an outline with points and subpoints. These things are familiar to us. And as far as this passage is concerned, it continues from the previous verses. Last week we covered down to verse 29. And the week before that we studied in the beginning of chapter 5, which had to do with a man who was healed at a pool called Bethesda. Jesus healed this lame man miraculously. And then he got into very big trouble with the rulers who accused him and the man he healed of breaking the Sabbath, which was a big deal. And what we looked at last week was the section in the middle that discusses the argument, really, between Jesus and these rulers when they confront him for having broken the Sabbath. And where we pick up today is really the same conversation. So the same players are involved. You've got these rulers who had confronted Jesus. And we're going to say that they get to serve the role of the prosecutor. Because... If you notice when we read through this, this is very heavy in courtroom language. We've seen this all through our study of the book of John so far. And here more so than ever. If you were counting, I doubt any of you were, um, there were ten uses of the word witness in just what we read from verses 30 through 47. So it was very heavy on the courtroom language. You've got these rulers here in the place of the prosecution, and we've got Jesus actually defending himself, representing himself as the defendant. Now, if you've got a red-letter Bible today, that's also going to give you another clue. All the words in what we just read are the color red. The prosecution doesn't get to speak in this part of the conversation. We're only reading what, what Jesus has to say in his own defense. And what he's going to do is call no less than five witnesses to support the claims that he's made. And then he's going to give no less than five rebukes to these that have accused him, wrongfully, of breaking the Sabbath. So if you organize it that way, we've got our points. There'll be two main points. One has to do with five witnesses. One has to do with five rebukes. And those five will be the subpoints hanging off of those two major points. And consequently, you can pretty much split the paragraph into two. The first half having to do with the witnesses, the second half with the rebukes. 
And there's a little bit of overlap in between. But what about the theme of it all? Because every courtroom, though it may look the same, the cases involved are usually quite different. And that's the case here. And as good Bible students, we're going to need to make sure we understand, even though we're applying this towards things that might be relevant toward a graduate, uh, the meaning of the text is always the same regardless. John, when writing, I doubt he had in mind a service in Fuquay in 2019 with six graduates all being young ladies. He wasn't thinking about that. We're thinking about that. So his original meaning has one thing to say, but there may be a number of themes you can draw out of it. We might call them applications. And you might teach your children differently with one passage of Scripture than you would teach an an adult class. So the applications can change, the meaning does not. So saying that, the theme of this passage having to do with witnesses and whether or not Jesus is qualified to stand on his own two feet representing himself has everything to do or at least has to do with the theme of approval he's bringing in witnesses to approve or validate it's a good word what he's saying when he stands for himself or makes his stand and then we're going to find out what he thinks his approval of those who are accusing him Now, if we went back through the story, we could ask many questions. Did Jesus have the approval of his witnesses? Well, sure he did. Uh, John the Baptist was one of them. You might have remembered that. John the Baptist introduced him as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So he's got his approval. Uh, God in heaven is one. If you know your Bibles, at his baptism, the Father opened the clouds and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That, That... Stands in for his approval. And the others, the scriptures, or Moses. He's got his on his side. But on the other side, you've got these that are accusing him. He does not have their approval whatsoever. Uh, in fact, the, the heat has been ratcheted up. And at the end of the previous passage, we read the very helpful phrasing where John tells us, This is why. These things he's done on the Sabbath. This is why the persecution against Jesus is rising. And then two verses later he says, This is why they sought the more to kill him. Now, I don't know if you've ever had anyone who persecuted you and then changed their mind. I'm going to try to kill you now. But that's what he's got wrapped up into this discussion. Let that color the whole story. This is a, quite an intense conversation. In the back of their mind they want him dead. But the question I think that will help us get into this theme is to ask, how did Jesus think or feel about the fact that he had some approval from a few, but he had disapproval from the crowd? Didn't seem to bother him. Never seemed to bother him. I'm going to give it away, but we get to the end, he's going to say, I don't have the glory from any man. That's not why I'm here. I'm not here for the praise of people. I'm here to finish the work the Father's given me. So we've got our example here of Jesus who seems to be impervious to the disapproval or alienation of other people. And as far as I'm concerned, I've graduated long ago, but I still have not figured out how to get rid of my want for approval.
I want your approval. I want your approval, and the choir's approval. Everybody's approval, even the organ and the piano. I want to be liked. I think you like to be liked. This is universal. It doesn't, it's older. We only need to be old enough to know who we are and that we exist. We want approval. And before we die, we pretty much got to go unconscious before we'll ever give that up. But Jesus seems to be the one on this planet who doesn't and isn't affected by this at all. So this couldn't be a bigger theme for this specific stage of life, this crossroads where you're at. Um, you know, for, for most of human history, the way it usually works when you're younger, you live, first of all, wanting the approval of your parents. You want them to be proud of you. I still haven't outgrown that. I want my parents to be proud of me. I want them to think that what I've done with my life is something worthwhile. Uh, I, I really like for them to want me to be around. Um, but I've noticed as I've gotten older, and I haven't been alive a long time, but long enough to see that things have changed in that period of time. And now, even though the world has worked as it has for most of the time it's been spinning, at least one thing has changed. There are now a lot more parents flipping that backward and living and spending their money, and most of their effort goes into looking to get the approval of their children. Did I send them to the right schools? Did I get them into the right schools? Uh, did I give them what they needed when they needed it? Did I correct them enough? Did I correct them too much? Do they want me around? Uh, so this affects all of us in here. The, the, the idea of approval. And when you leave home, all of that changes. Because it's not so much parent and child as it is child and a little bit of parents. And a whole lot of employment or a whole lot of the classroom. Or a whole lot of any number of things that you'll be doing. You won't be spending as much time at home from this point. So your need for approval looks different. There will be the approval you'll need of, of, of professors and coaches and classmates, roommates. That's going to be fun. I'm telling you. <laughs> right now, and, and all I know is a room full of boys that couldn't be any more different or for him, if you had a map you couldn't get us further apart Canada, Papua New Guinea California, Florida and Virginia was the five of us in a room but you'll want them to like you or it'll be that much more difficult to get through that but when we realize and you've probably already realized this and, and if you don't you'll just realize how much more it changes as you grow older you will never have a 100% approval rate in your whole life. It's just not the way life works. Um, maybe when you're born for maybe, you know, the time it takes for you to be held by your parents and grandparents. But then comes the crying and that approval rating will probably <laughs> go down. Um, and it seems that as we try to engage people to, to perhaps gain the approval of, of a certain group or, or a certain person that we have interest in, at the very same time, because of the very same things we say, do, or think, or believe, we're alienating ourselves from another group of people for the very same reasons. Where you'll go up with one group, you'll go down with the other. 
And what might be even more frustrating is that is to find which direction some of that disapproval might come. Uh, for, as far as my background goes, I was born into a Christian home, as many of you. And Dad had me in church as soon as I was, I guess, old enough to go. Um, there are a few old ladies that would say, until that belly button thing falls off, you don't take them to church. Um, but my father was a pastor, so I couldn't be any more involved in a group in a church setting. And then when we moved, we moved to another church. And then when I left home for Florida, all the way down to Florida, I went to Word of Life Bible Institute. So they were all Christians. And when I came home to work, I worked at a Ford dealership. Again, the boss there was a Christian. The bosses I had before at other places were Christians. And the bosses I would have later would be Christians. And the church I would first be hired with was full of Christians. And the church I worked for my dad, they're all full of Christians. I've been around Christians all my life. And I don't have a 100% approval rating. In fact, I, I don't know. I think I dug a new basement for lowest at certain places in churches of all space. Sometimes the approval rating would move during the day or during the hour. I don't know. <laughs> but it, it's not a given that you'll be approved even by the people you have in common with the, the, being saved by the same blood of Jesus. That's just part of the way this works. Here you've got that Jesus who shed his blood for us, looking into the faces of people he created who've had his book to study for a long time and they couldn't be more wrong about who he is. And it's all a misunderstanding. And I think you'll find for, for young people, for pastors, whoever, misunderstanding is about as low as you can feel, especially when you can't fix it. And the more you try, the worse it gets. So that's the, the theme this morning. And really what we're going to need to do by the end of this message is ask one central question. Whose approval is most important if you can't have the approval of everybody? If you've got to pick and choose, who gets it? Now we don't have to go very far. Verse 30 is going to answer that question for us. And we'll start right there before we split it up into five witnesses and five rebukes. But look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. This is Jesus trying to explain to these people. He hasn't ripped God off in blasphemy. He's right there on the same page as God because he is God. He says, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just or fair because I seek not my own will. This isn't about me, but the will of him who sent me. And we learned last week what he's saying again here. It is Jesus who's been giving given the responsibility to judge the world. So I would think of all the approval you'll ever want, the most important is the one who's going to judge you at the end of it. You'll need his approval. If you don't get anyone else's, the one who will judge you and point one way or the other, that's the one you're going to want. So we'll hold on to that. We'll come back to it at the end. But ultimately, you only need the approval of one person, the person who will judge you ultimately for your life here on earth. So five witnesses to the validity of Christ's claims. And the way we'll apply this to ourselves, we identify this as what others think about Jesus, but we'll try the shoe on every now and then as to what we think and say about Jesus. If we're witnessing, if we're in the box, 
or testifying, what do we think about Jesus? And uh, the act of witness itself really is an interesting word or concept. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way. Depends on what you're going to be studying or what you read or what you watch on TV. But when somebody steps into the witness box, gets into the witness chair, and they begin to testify in a specific case, they then give up their freedom to choose between which side of the fence they want to come down on. No more fence riding anymore. They've then gone on record. They're, they're, they're aligned in approval with one side or the other. And at some point you'll be forced, especially with these who are seeking approval or withholding it from you, you'll need to testify. And then that'll be it as to riding the fence. And to say, one, two, three, four, fifth, I, I plead the fifth. Um... That's choosing two. (laughs) And usually it doesn't work out that good. No more than it did the time that I was in traffic court and said, I plead no contest. You can't say guilty or not guilty. It's done. Well, you said it out of your mouth. You're one or the other. No contest is kind of like sitting on the fence and maybe you get a chance to explain uh, how you saw it. But a lot of times it doesn't work that well. Jesus would say, later, you will be my witnesses. And each of us, according to the Great Commission, are, are, are very much so witnesses for the claims of Christ, especially if we truly believe that he's paid our sin debt and we are indeed saved. But witness number one, we'll go back through this and we'll, we'll, move, we'll pick up the pace. Christ himself is the first witness. He testifies uh, personally, verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Uh, your ESV may have been updated to have the word deemed in there as well. Um, and this doesn't mean that Jesus is saying if he's the one that says it, then it has to be false. Oh, it's very much true. But it's not admissible in the court of human law to have one witness you, you need corroborating evidence you, you, you layer up the witnesses and they all agree you've got a pattern and this works for the Jews it had to be two or three witnesses so he's saying that makes sense he's pointing to the impossibility of a man being accepted on the basis of his own word witnesses must always be borne by someone else um, I don't know about you but when I filled out my application for college Liberty University Uh, They didn't just want what I had to say about it. They wanted my GPA from high school. And that got mailed to them later. I I couldn't even put my hands on them because I might try to change them or something. You know, they got to be all sealed. And then some of them will want references from people. And that will have to be sealed with like a signature over the, the flap when you stick it down so that you can't tamper with it. Because you can't very well just roll up on campus and say, I'm good for this. They're going to want to know that others say that you're good for this. So when we're thinking about approval, this idea of of witness in numbers really makes a difference. So Jesus throws out his own testimony, even though if anyone could speak on his own feet, you would think it'd be the man who made the planet and everything on it, right? He doesn't really need a character witness, but... He decides, I'm working with humanity here, so independent confirmation is required. There we go to witness number two. Verse 33, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. This would be that delegation from Jerusalem that went to check him out. And he bore witness to the truth that he wasn't the Messiah. 
that the Messiah was coming, he would introduce him as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said of John that those born of women, he's the greatest of all. So this is about as important of a human witness that Jesus could get to speak on his behalf. However, the witness of John, though valuable, was insufficient because it was human testimony. And you need an expert witness if you're going to prove yourself as the Son of God. And I don't know where you get an expert on Son of Godness who happens to be a human. So this falls short. Jesus says here, and we'll want to underline this, make a note of it, because this is going to make all the difference here in just a few moments. Jesus said, the testimony that I have is greater. The word there means weightier than that of John. I've got a, I've got a, a witness, an approval that's heavier, more substantive than even John the Baptist. And what he's talking about is the, the witness of his father. That's witness number three. And this is described by the way that the Father gives him works or miracles to show who he is. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, verse 36, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. So as great as John's witness was, his approval, it could not establish the position of someone on the level of the Son of God. So he's given signs and works and miracles. And as he performs these miracles, like healing this man at the pool of Bethesda, it's as if God's stamp of approval is engraved on these because nobody can do this stuff. He, he has to be... I mean, you think of a movie. Some of these where somebody is trained in some type of a, a martial art or something on some tall hill. I mean, you can think of all kinds of movies that fit this setup. But then he's not really known to be the pupil of this great warrior until he pretty much wipes the earth of all the rest of the competition. Then everybody, oh, wow, well, he must be like, you know, the other guy. Well, this is kind of the same way. God's going to have to give him things only God can do in order to prove that he's himself the Son of God. We could ask ourselves the question here. Do our works bear the marks of Jesus. When people have spent time with us. Do they, if, they, if they found out later that you were Christians and went to church. Would it surprise them? Or would that say. You know what. That, I knew something was different about them. That makes, that makes sense. So let's move to. Uh, number four. That's scripture. You search the scriptures. And we're getting into his rebukes. At this point, you search the scriptures, your Bibles, because you think that in them you have eternal life. Jesus is not being kind here in what he's saying. He's being very true. It is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus is giving a command here. We need to make sure we understand what the verse says. He's not making a statement. Or he is making a statement, not giving a command. He's not saying, go back and read your Bibles. Get the dust off of it, read it, and you'll find out it's talking about me. He's saying you've spent your lives reading your Bibles. And you got it wrong. The wrong conclusion altogether. That, that's huge. You don't just walk up to the rulers of Israel and say, as far as the oracles of God, you've missed the whole point. But that's exactly what he's doing. 
which the truth is, is quite possible to know a great deal about the Bible and not know the Jesus it's written about. Um, we even got Bibles on the table there in front of you. We're going to present in a bit. They're full of notes. It's nothing new to you. You've had Bibles. You know your Bibles. You've memorized verses in Awana. But that doesn't guarantee you put them all together and know the gospel. That's something that is a grace gift God gives to us. We've got to be faithful with. So, one more witness before we get to the rebukes, and that is Moses. And of all the authors in the Bible, he's got his name on the first five. He says, for if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. The idea is he, they didn't believe that. They didn't get it. He's talking about these first five books. And basically, uh, and I don't know school you'll be attending or how it's structured or, or what the class course is like. At Liberty University, when I got there, there was uh, two really, really easy classes for anybody who'd ever been in church. They were basically just ethics classes, biblical basis, you know, Bible 101 for people who were joining uh, who didn't grow up in a church. For those of us who'd been to Bible college already one year at Word of Life, we basically slept through this class. It was called Gen Ed, General Education. And uh, if, you, if you did the math right, you could figure out how little you actually needed to do in order to still get the passing grade because it didn't have a letter attached to it. It was pass or fail. Um, shouldn't tell you that. <laughs> but uh, it, it was about as second nature as it could be. The books of Moses were about as second nature to the, the people Jesus is talking to as could be. That's just the basics. Everybody knows this stuff. But what Jesus is saying is, you flunked Gen Ed. Fail. The whole thing was describing a law that's purpose was to convince you that you can't keep it. You need a savior. His name is Jesus. But they looked at it and they thought, well, I'm going to try my best to keep this. And if I keep them all, by the time I die, maybe the Lord will... See me righteous and I'll get to heaven. That's an absolute train wreck. Just needs time to complete itself. But that's what had happened with these people. So here we see Christ give five rebukes against them. And always in scripture we see humility met with grace. Humble people who understand their problems and are saying to Jesus, help me. They get grace. The proud ones that say we don't need you. In fact, in the back of my mind, we're plotting your execution. They get law right in the face. And with really no punches held back. So here are the five rebukes. What Jesus says about the rulers. And again, we'll try the shoe on. Maybe one of these might fit what Jesus thinks or says about us. First of all, look at verse 37. His voice you have never heard. So he's saying that they can't hear. Unlike Moses who heard the voice of God in Exodus 33, they should have known about that. Then he says later the same verse, His form you have never seen. So he's saying that not only do they not hear, they don't see. Um, 
Jacob saw the face of God. He described it as face to face in Genesis 32. Now, is there really hearing his voice and really seeing his face? Not sure. But they've got Bibles here. You ought to be able to see the face of God and hear the voice of God reading your Bibles. They haven't. Then later on in verse 38, and you do not have his word abiding in you. The psalmist said he hid God's word in his heart. That shouldn't be so difficult. But he's saying all this about Scripture. You don't hear, you don't see, you don't learn from your Bibles. And then he goes on to say, For you don't believe the one who has sent me. So they don't believe. They don't hear, they don't see, they don't learn, they don't believe. For you do not believe the only one whom he has sent. I guess what you could just boil all that down to, we'll save this fifth one. They don't approve of him. They approve of his word, the Bible, but they don't approve of him. And that shouldn't surprise us because most of the world doesn't either. Right? We're a minority here, even in a room this size. And here's the fifth and final rebuke against these people. And this one doesn't rhyme with the ones before. It doesn't start with... Well, it starts with the word they, but it doesn't continue with the word don't. This one is they steal glory. They're glory thieves. Let me explain. Verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. And that's where he just kind of draws a singular line of, of common sense that pulls us all together. You're too busy gaining the approval of one another that you've not gained the approval of God. You might think you know Him, but He doesn't know you. And what Jesus means by word glory here, we've got words to help us define this through dictionaries. The word is esteem. It's been a long time since I heard the word esteem without the word self in front of it, right? We, uh, we like to use that word self-esteem. I'm not so big on self-esteem. I think you can overdo self-esteem. You can have so many participation trophies, you know, the case falls down. I don't know that it really adds to things later some it does from parents yes but the other word is praise and what's interesting enough it goes back to what jesus had said about his witness and and weightier the word praise and the word glory is the same words they used for adding weight to things it's substantive it's important it's what you put a lot of your investment into he says you've been investing in each other proving one another glorifying one another but you haven't sought that from the lord look at verse 41 I do not receive glory from people. That's uh, pretty clear. Jesus isn't in it for that. He's not on this planet. Um, Which is interesting. Because he could have had it. How many of you think Jesus knew exactly what to do to gain the approval of all these people? Especially the ones that are in his face now and want him dead. He just has to stoop to the level of the Messiah they're actually looking for, right? And there are people that you go to school with in high school and in college. At the drop of a hat, you know what to do to be approved by them. But that's a decision you have to make. And sometimes it involves lowering certain things or standards or whatever else. Uh, Jesus could have won Judea's Got Talent anytime he wanted to. 
because he had what it took to draw a crowd. This guy, though, seems to be running away from the camera more than anything else. He, he didn't want a moment of it. He said in verse 43, I have come in my Father's name. That's who approves me. And you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, his own approval, you'll follow him. And we've got cults and disasters and uh, where, where we get that statement, don't drink the Kool-Aid, comes from is something like this. And people follow it. And we scratch our heads. We have no idea how it works, but it does. How can you believe, verse 44, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now here's where I found an illustration that I think was very helpful to me. And uh, it comes from C.S. Lewis. Sure, you're familiar with that name. Some of you are, if not only for his Narnia series. He's a fantastic thinker and could put complex things into language ordinary folk like us can understand. And he was speaking uh, at King's College in London, 1944, addressing a whole body of students. And among the things that he said, one most central was this description of what he called the inner ring and the way he would describe this uh, in that message he delivered was by explaining to them that there are formal uh, categories and scaffolds of authority in this life that are quite obvious they're written down you join the military, you know exactly how this works. The general's at the top and the private is at the bottom. And there's this huge chain of command all the way down. And if you work your way up through the ranks, the approval comes at these specific increments. Same is true with business. There's the CEO at the top and then there's the guy working in the mailroom down at the bottom, right? You work your way up. But what he says is there's this equally important and maybe perhaps even more powerful uh, structure of authority that has no handbook. Nothing's written about it. Nothing's said about it. And that's what he calls this inner circle. And you might not know what it is, but if you get anywhere near it, you'll know whether or not you're in it or outside it. And in this case, it might be where someone in the military, you've got this corporal who has the ear of the major or general how does that happen before others in line well because he's inside the circle the ring and the other guy's not that's the way that works or the ceo someone from the mail room gets to speak into his ear well i'm the assistant to the regional manager i want time with the ceo sorry you're on the outside of the ring and it doesn't have to be military or business. This can be the lunchroom when you get there on the first day of high school and the sophomores have this thing going on and you don't know how to get into that. There's dues you have to pay, things you need to learn, the way you talk, all of this. You're on the outside and they're on the inside. And this is universal. We all understand this. He says it's powerful and dangerous at the same time because it's powerful, because it doesn't matter how old you are or where you came from. The desire to want to be in that circle is very strong. 
And the realization that you're on the outside of that circle is very terrifying. And it's dangerous because, as he put it, nine out of ten of you, almost in prophetic form, will be offered entrance to a circle. And it may very well take someone who's not at all a bad person. And you'll surprise yourself at the capacity to do a very bad thing. To gain the approval of people you might not even like. And as you grow up, you'll have families and you'll buy a house and you'll probably participate in this thing where you try to keep up with Joneses buying stuff to decorate your yards to impress people you don't even like across the street. But boy, you feel better if you're in that circle that you don't like than being on the outside of that circle that you don't like. And usually it doesn't come with a printed invitation. On this date, we're going to ask you to jettison these morals to be part of this group. It's probably going to be disguised uh, between a cup of coffee and a piece of pumpkin pie. I don't know. Uh, disguised as a triviality, as Lewis said, sandwiched between two jokes. But you'll know, hey, I just got the invitation. And you'll be faced as to whether or not it's important enough to be in to trade being out. Because once you're in this circle, you've alienated yourself from everybody outside the circle. It's either or. It's it's always a trade-off. So when we read across a word like this from Scripture, and our, our hearts, our, 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 our guts, our, our, our inner child, if you want to call it that, I don't know, lives to say, look at me, approve me, validate me, make me feel needed, make me feel special, make me feel pretty. That's where we all live. It's going to be quite tempting to give in to that type of thing. Remember Jesus had the approval of man. That was John the Baptist and that was quite an approval. But he said that there was a greater witness. A weightier approval. And that was his father in heaven. So if you look at verse 44 one more time. You're going to read about that weightier approval. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? That's not weightier. And do not seek the glory, the approval that comes from the only God. That's the weightier approval. And therein lies salvation. They were taking the approval of people rather than the approval of God. This sounds an awful lot like a verse we learn in Awana from Jesus from a different gospel, Matthew six thirty three. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you. What things? Maybe not the things you want really bad, but the things you need really bad. And then when later you're with me and all this has drifted away, it'll be all the stuff you really wanted. But you have to trust me. Seek me first, the others second. And it's not that all circles are bad. This is a circle. There are inner rings within this ring. Um... For every church on the planet and and their structure of who's in charge, don't let that fool you at all. There are other people that levers, it's the way it works. 
And some of that is very good and helpful. We call it membership. Your family is a ring. Membership. It's great. But there are others that aren't. And because for some reason we want the approval, we've got to really make sure we answer that question. Which one's most important? And the truth is you'll have to pick one. Every day. Not just once in your life. You'll think you've got it done and then there'll be another one and another one and another one. So our prayer is that you choose wisely. Don't necessarily worry about trading glory with men. But finding the glory, the approval of the only God who will be your judge. The rest of this will take care of itself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word and for you to show us plain as day what the most important approval is. It's not what we get from each other or our parents. Lord, that's important, but it's not the weightiest. It's not the greatest. The greatest approval of all is yours. That you would look down and see in us obedience to the truth that's been given through your word about your son and what he did for us on the cross. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to think through these things from the perspective of graduation. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.